Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In the last two episodes, we have seen Jesus enter and take control of the temple, shutting down the sacrifices, and teaching without authorization from the Sanhedrin. He has bound the strong man and is plundering his house. In this episode, the various political parties in Jerusalem will collaborate and tag-team in a somewhat coordinated attempt to try to stop Jesus. They will take three swings at him. They will try to trap or stump Jesus three times with legal questions, but they will strike out. Then Jesus will get his turn at bat. But before he starts swinging, he will first pose a question to them that clears up a riddle that we've been encountering ever since the very beginning of this gospel. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 57 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. begin with verses 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this, and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. He said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. One thing I failed to mention in the last episode was that the description of Jesus' audience after the second parable at the end of chapter 21 slightly changed. It went from being described as the chief priests and elders of the people to the chief priests and Pharisees. All three groups, chief priests, elders of the people, and Pharisees, overlap and indicate members of the Sanhedrin. But here we get a more significant shift, with the Pharisees joining forces with the Herodians to trap Jesus. This is the first time we have encountered the Herodians. We've encountered two kings named Herod, but not a group called the Herodians. Such a group indicates a political party that is probably not part of the Sanhedrin, but rather aligned with the Herodian client kings appointed by Rome. The group is not mentioned in any ancient literature outside of the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. The pairing of Pharisees and Herodians is extraordinary, and likely meant to signal by the narrator 
a revelation of true power dynamics. The Pharisees, if Josephus' description of them as being popular among the people has any truth to it, the Pharisees would not have wanted to be seen as aligned with the Herodians. The Herodian dynasty was brutal and a direct puppet of Rome. Herod the Great was crowned king of the Jews in Rome by a Roman senate and then came back to Israel with Roman troops to pacify Israel for Rome. Collaborating with that dynasty or its supporters would have been seen as collaborating with Rome. Matthew is telling us that regardless of how they present themselves, when push comes to shove, the Pharisees are part of the ruling class and are therefore on Rome's side. When Jesus disrupts the temple with his teaching, after having shut down the sacrifices the day before, when he starts plundering the house, as it were, taking over the temple, the Pharisees join forces with the Herodians to trap him, asking him a question about paying Roman taxes. And notice how they address Jesus in phrasing their question. Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Aside from its duplicitousness, this preface to their question indicates that Jesus has a reputation as a radical egalitarian. He regards no one with partiality. And they plan to use his egalitarian values against him. They also know that he has been teaching a revolutionary message about God's new society. So hoping to use his revolutionary and egalitarian message against him, they ask him whether it is lawful to pay taxes to the emperor, to Caesar, whether it is lawful to pay taxes to the hated Roman occupier. The law that they are referring to when they ask, is it lawful, is the ancient law of Israel, the Torah. Jesus is presented in Matthew as a champion of Torah, but also as having a liberationist interpretation of Torah. They know Jesus' liberationist vision, so they are trying to either get him arrested by telling the people not to pay the Roman tax, or get him to deny his liberationist vision by acquiescing to the Roman tax. They think they have him cornered by placing him in a no-win situation. Will he encourage tax resistance against Rome and get himself arrested as a rebel insurgent? Or will he acquiesce out of fear, destroying his street cred as an authentic revolutionary, a true messiah? Now, the popular interpretation today of this passage is that Jesus does the latter. He acquiesces to the Roman tax by saying that people should pay taxes to Caesar because Caesar's image is on the coin. Of course, in that current popular interpretation of this passage, Jesus is not denying his liberationist vision because he doesn't have a liberationist vision in that popular interpretation. And also, the popular interpretation likens this to when we pay taxes to our own governments. And somehow, telling everyone to comply with Rome is supposed to be a clever retort. But this is not about paying a tax to one's own government. This is about paying tax to the government of an occupying power. This is about funding the brutal occupation of your own people. When asked about the temple tax, Jesus found a clever way to pay it, because the temple, although also a puppet government of Rome, 
was at least understood as an important institution of Israel. It did, at least in theory, act as an Israelite government. Jesus paid the tax, but only after taking it out of a fish's mouth, perhaps symbolically stealing it from Caesar, who claimed ownership of all the fish of the sea. But there is no way that the direct Roman tax can be justified, and Jesus does not acquiesce to it. Notice what Jesus does. First, he instructs them to show him the coin. He does not have one himself, perhaps because he is poor, or perhaps because he does not carry such coins on him on principle. The reason is left up to our interpretation. Then he asks, whose image and title is on the coin? You see, the image was not just the image of Caesar. Under it was his title. Son of God. Specifically, it said, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, or the God Augustus. It was then an image of a Roman deity. It declared Augustus to be a God and Tiberius his son, therefore, son of a God. And you don't have to take my word for it. So many of these coins have been found by archaeologists that you can order one for yourself on the internet. Just do an internet search for Roman Tiberius Denarius Tribute Penny. Roman Tiberius Denarius Tribute Penny. They are currently going for around $540 and up, depending on the vendor and the quality. And when you do the internet search, you will see pictures of it as well as a Wikipedia article and other articles on it. That's what was on the coin, an image of Tiberius Caesar as son of the god Augustus. Such an image and such a declaration were anathema to a pious Jew, to a Jew loyal to Israel and Israel's God. So maybe that's why Jesus doesn't carry one of these coins on him. Jesus is pointing out the blasphemy on the coin. He then says rhetorically, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, give him that blasphemous coin you have, because the peasants, many of whom don't have such coins, just as Jesus doesn't have such a coin, they know that nothing belongs to Caesar and that everything belongs to God. And their own ancient Israelite scriptures tell them that they are to make no graven images and that the image of God, according to Genesis 1, the image of God is imprinted on humankind, and cannot be claimed by Caesar. He is basically throwing their blasphemous and traitorous question and all its assumptions back on them. And there is nothing they can do. He has publicly exposed their blasphemy and their complicity with Rome. He has exposed them as collaborators, exposed them to shame once again. And that's why everyone thinks It's such a clever answer. Let's continue with verses 23 to 33. The same day, some Sadducees came to him, saying, There is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies childless, his brother shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died childless, leaving the widow to his brother. 
The second did the same, so also the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman herself died. In the resurrection, then, whose wife of the seven will she be? For all of them had married her. Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astounded at his teaching. To us, this whole exchange sounds like a theological or religious debate. But the stakes of this debate are not merely abstract, theological, or religious matters in the way that we understand those things. What hangs in the balance here is the hope of liberation, including an end to the system of patriarchal domination. The Sadducees, according to Josephus, were more elite than the Pharisees and represented the interests of the wealthy, and they did not believe in resurrection. Resurrection for the common poor did not just provide them hope beyond the crushing cruelty of life in this world. The hope of resurrection also had arisen in Israel as the promise of final victory over the oppressive empires of this world. We can see this development in the apocalyptic literature of Israel. Ezekiel 37 uses resurrection as a metaphor of liberation from the Babylonian Empire. Daniel 12 speaks of literal resurrection as victory over the Seleucid Empire. 2 Maccabees 7 tells of a mother and seven sons who resist the Seleucid Empire, enduring torture and martyrdom in the faith that they will see victory through resurrection. The Psalms of Solomon and 1 Enoch both speak of resurrection as victory over the Roman Empire. And this Gospel of Matthew has referenced the Jonah story three times, a story of prophetic victory over the Assyrian Empire. And Matthew's Jesus has interpreted it as a story of resurrection. And now Jesus says to the Sadducees, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The Sadducees have presented a situation that is predicated on patriarchal practice. A man must take his dead brother's wife, not for her sake, but to raise up children for his dead brother. It is the man's legacy that is the concern. But Jesus says that they have underestimated the power of God. For Jesus, for the author of Matthew, the power of God is strong enough to completely break the whole patriarchal system. The Sadducees cannot imagine anything beyond such a system. But the faith of Jesus is in a God that can break this seemingly all-powerful, all-pervasive system of domination. In the resurrection, the patriarchal system of marriage will no longer hold. The gender binary will no longer prevail, because we will be like angels in heaven, neither marrying nor being given in marriage. I'm inserting a quick addendum here. I realized after recording this episode that I could be understood to be saying that marriage is always a patriarchal construction. And of course, marriage is not always a patriarchal construction. But in the ancient Mediterranean world, marriage was usually, almost always, 
a highly patriarchal construction. And this construction is what Jesus says will end in the resurrection. I have no idea what he might say about egalitarian marriages, because he does not comment on them, and neither he nor his original audience likely ever encountered one. Interestingly, this and the other three Gospels in the New Testament portray him as single, and as promoting singleness as the highest calling of a disciple. Let's continue with verses 34 to 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This time they select a lawyer or a legal scholar from among them to test Jesus. This will be the last time that word test gets used in this story. It is the same word as is translated tempt, as in when the devil tempted or tested Jesus in the desert in chapter 4. The question doesn't seem to be as clever as the previous two, and perhaps it is not, and is just a last-ditch effort to try to somehow trip up Jesus. But it is a question that the rabbis constantly debated and explored. So perhaps it is simply a test of Jesus' skill as a rabbi, giving him a question that highly skilled rabbis wrestle with. And his answer is very much in line with the conclusions of other rabbis of the period, as well as multiple prophetic texts. So when he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, he is very much in line with Israelite legal and prophetic tradition. But this also gives us another interpretive key to understand Jesus' approach to any law and any legal situation. Even though it is very much in line with much of rabbinical and prophetic thought, that does not necessarily mean that his opponents in Jerusalem aren't challenged by it. They cannot deny that he is right, but they must also recognize that they, in practice, often fail to use the same interpretive key and instead often prioritize the needs of their institutions and their social class above the law of love. Jesus continues to show himself to be a wise sage with legal insights and skills that rival even those of a legal scholar who fails to trip him up. Let's continue with verses 41 to 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them the same question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David by the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So now Jesus turns the tables on them. He asks them a question. He puts a riddle to them to see if they can answer. 
The question may seem confusing to us because we are not steeped in their literature, even though it makes up more than half of our Bible, and because the text cited uses the word Lord twice, referring to two different people. Jesus is citing Psalm 110, which is a coronation psalm that was understood to be about the Messiah, and was also understood to be written by David. It starts out saying, The Lord said to my Lord. The first Lord is God. The second Lord is the person being crowned king. Lord can be a reverential title given to anyone of equal or higher social rank. But in this case, because the writer says, My Lord, it designates specifically a higher social rank. And it is this second person, designated as Lord, that is understood to be the Messiah. A father would not address his son as my Lord. So if the psalm is written by David, something that they all agree on, and if the psalm is about the Messiah, another thing they all agree on, then the Messiah cannot be a son of David, since David calls him my Lord. Jesus has finally made clear something that the story has been hinting at all along. Despite constantly being hailed by the people as son of David, something that indicates that they understand him as the long-awaited Messiah, he is not really a son of David. We saw that first in the genealogy, where the author goes out of his way to remind us that David was a rapist and a murderer. Then, after providing a long list of fathers in the lineage ending with Joseph, the genealogy ends by saying that Jesus is a son of Mary, not Joseph or any of that male lineage, including David. Then Jesus proceeds to carry out a campaign that is very different than David's military campaigns. Jesus carries out a campaign of healing instead of killing. He speaks of a kingdom in which the king serves everyone else and lays down his life for everyone else. An upside-down kingdom, very different from David's hierarchical and patriarchal kingdom. Jesus teaches that men should not look lustfully at women, treat them as objects that can be discarded for any reason, unlike David who had many wives and concubines. Then Jesus heals the blind and the lame in the temple, those whom David hated and would not allow to enter the temple. Now Jesus comes out and says that he is not a son of David. And that is the last we hear of David's name in this gospel. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode is provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please spread the word about the podcast. You can do that in many ways, but one way is to rate and review the podcast if the platform that you are using allows it. A big thank you to everyone who has done that and to all who have supported this podcast in all the ways that you have done that. You can send questions and comments to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. This has been episode 57 of Bible study, parody and subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Uh